0: One, two, three, four. Lan Samantha Chang is Program Director of the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop and Elizabeth M. Stanley Professor in the Arts. She is the author of a collection of short fiction, Hunger, and two novels, Inheritance and All is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost. Her work has been translated into nine languages and has been chosen twice for the best American short stories. She has received creative writing fellowships from Stanford University, Princeton University, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Let's welcome Lan Samantha Chang to the creative process. I know
1: growing up in Wisconsin, I felt that there were many stories that my parents did not tell me about China. One of the reasons they didn't tell me is that they chose not to think about it, and another was that um, there there was a lack of language. Mm -hmm. Now, during the years of approximately 1949 until about 1980, around 1980, Travel in and out of mainland China wasn't allowed. So, and those were the years when I was sort of coming of age as a person, you know, as a child, you know, learning Mm -hmm. what the world was like. That was a time when uh, my parents were unable to go back to the country where they had been born and they Mm -hmm. were not allowed to have access to their own families of origin. In my mother's side of the family, several people managed to leave the mainland China and come to the United States. My father's side of the family, he was the only one um, in his his nuclear family who left mainland China. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And he left his family in Beijing to travel to the inner provinces in order to receive a Chinese education because that was at a point when Japan was invading China and they were invading from the east, and so you had to go west in order to find you know, all the scholars of the big universities in the north and northeast, uh, east of China went fled to the inner provinces, and so my father left home at 18 to go to college in the inner provinces and never went back. Mm-hmm. So I was being raised by two people who were exiles, effectively exiles from their country and their family, and there was a lot that was not discussed. So it was that which I describe, you know. I describe it in another way in one of in in the novella hunger as a hole in the house. Like there's a giant hole in the house. Yeah. It's like a black hole that things go into and they don't come out of. So there's a lot going on that isn't isn't discussed. So growing up in a situation like that, you feel like you're surrounded by mystery. So not only was I surrounded by mystery at home, but I was also surrounded by mystery when I left the home and went into the into the world, which was entirely a Midwestern, very homogeneous culture. Appleton, Wisconsin is a, I don't know, a town of, at the time, you know, some forty, fifty thousand 50,000 people, most of whom were of German, Scandinavian descent, many from other parts of, you know, England and Europe, and really, my sisters and I were fish out of water. Um, we were the only Chinese girls in Appleton. There were a couple of Asian boys, but we were the only girls, mm-hmm. and we had to stick together. We had our own sort of very strange culture. Mm-hmm. It was one way home. We went to school, we understood school was another way, Mm -hmm. to varying degrees we managed to fit in or didn't. So that's really the uh, experience I wrote about. I've always, however, had a very strong sense of identity, probably because I grew up in a pack of sisters. Mm -hmm. So I never felt, never felt entirely alone. And so I think, in a way, I I was lucky, having Mm -hmm. to have a strong sense of identity.
3: That's interesting because the, the, sister, the strength of a strong sisterhood is something that occurs not just, not just in hunger, in inheritance too, and um, yeah, that comes across very much, at, um, that closeness, or you, you can almost communicate without words. Yes, there's a, there's a
1: lot of shared experience that sisters have, and I think there's a lot of communication that doesn't require words. So a different language.
3: Mm-hmm. And it was interesting also this experience uh, because I know or we can say we can generalize that a lot of Asian parents won't be encouraging their children to take up that high paying job of being a novelist. But what you're describing to me is that you were responsible or your, your sisters were responsible for doing a lot of translation and in fact this is uh can you is that like the first step to you're telling other people's stories you're you're having to negotiate you're making these kind of narrative choices I mean that's very
1: possible. It's very possible that we were cultural translators I, all of my sisters are good with words, but so are so are my parents. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents are good with words. My mother's development of Chinese was arrested when she was eighteen and came to the United States and my mm-hmm. father who's still alive at 93, is wow. a very literary man and a very educated man. And so everyone in our house was always talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't even culturally translating. It's, it was a, there was a lot of translation of personal experience, just an attempt to talk the loudest or get some airtime. We had a very noisy, verbal, energetic family.
3: No that's great. It sounds it sounds like a a great um grounding for a writer. And I was fascinated by something that you mentioned. Although there is a lot of communication, the the mystery about like origins or you know what happened or maybe they they didn't know they were not in contact with their family. And it seems like this is also a good grounding because you, if you don't know the story, you have to make it up.
1: That's exactly I think why I became a writer. Yeah. I
3: think I became a writer
1: because there was so much silence in the house on such basic issues that I was required not only to investigate, Mm. to find out what happened, but then to repeat it to myself in order to, and to myself and others, in order to understand the story. And I think in inheritance in some ways, that was my most powerful effort. I made the most powerful effort to understand the China that my parents had come from, what had happened to that China and how it had changed and was changing. That, I think, is the most, I mean, it, it's, it's contained in the novel Inheritance. Mm-hmm. And after I wrote Inheritance, I felt, you know, pretty um, uninterested in pursuing writing about Asians or Asian Americans for a long time because sure. I had basically written about it.
3: Well, it's epic. It's an epic. It's a it's a contrast to the um, to hunger. That's so wide. Right, experience. hunger's
1: very spare. Yeah. Inheritance is more of an epic. And then my following novel um, was a departure. Uh, it's actually my favorite novel because it was just a huge pleasure to write. Okay. So much fun to write. Yeah. I had nothing Literating. to do. Nothing to do with my background, my family. It was all about lived experience and observations that I'd made coming up as a writer. Because you know, for me, becoming a writer was went hand in hand with becoming a person. Um, I think that my family had a really clear idea about who we were, mm-hmm. and my parents very much wanted us very much had in mind an idea of what they wanted us to be like. Mm-hmm. so they here they, they had uprooted, they had moved to a new country where they didn't speak the language they had raised four children and they wanted all of us to um, take root in the U.S. and to grow into kind of a, I would not exactly a dynasty, but like a very strong family in the U.S. They wanted mm-hmm. all of us to become professionals. They wanted all of us to go to very good colleges. They wanted us to be educated and um, and to raise families, to meet good people and raise our own families. Mm-hmm. And what they wanted us to do, professionally, they wanted us to become physicians. All of us. Like I think that was their number one career choice for any of us. And ultimately, out of the four of us, only one of us became a physician, and the rest of us kind of rebelled. My oldest sister is a lawyer. Uh, She lives in Manhattan and has three children. She, I mean, I'm saying my parents really did succeed to a large extent in raising uh, the family they wanted. They had four children. All of us attended Ivy League schools on mm-hmm. scholarship. All of us have advanced degrees of some kind. We're all financially solvent. Uh, all of us are married. Mm-hmm. My parents have six grandchildren. I think overall they feel, or in fact my mother died recently, so mm-hmm. I, I think my father feels that in some ways, in many ways, he succeeded in the United States. When I was growing up, however, he was much more anxious about it than that. He had no idea what would happen to us, and he was very worried. One of his biggest worries was that we would get pregnant in high school. You know, because we were the only Asian girls in town. The boys noticed that. Two of my sisters in particular were uh, very adventurous. Like, my oldest sister was homecoming queen. My next sister was the president of the student body. There was just a lot of activity and vivacity and... You know, they were worried. They wanted us to get safely into good colleges, meet good people, become doctors, and be financially comfortable to raise our families. And, you know, even though all of us didn't become doctors, all of us are financially solvent, and we were doing okay. The thing for me, however, was unlike my sisters, my path was artistic. And I think that was particularly stressful for my parents because they didn't understand why I couldn't see what an impractical choice that was. And now that I'm a parent, I look at that situation and realize that it was very impractical. But I had no other option, I had no other interests. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever I tried to do something else, I pretty much failed at it. And it, it was pretty obvious to me that being a novelist was the only thing that would ever make me happy, or short story writer, you know, fiction mm-hmm. writer. So when I was in my mid twenties, I pretty much told my parents that I wasn't going to like become a professional, that I was going to be a writer, and they were very upset for years. So at that point, I think I took on a second set of parents. Oh, um, the
3: faculty, the. Well, I
1: think that I think that the people that I. Um, People who helped me as a writer became my parents, mm-hmm. and That's the true. and the and the friends that I had became my family, and I was fascinated uh, by these new uh, family members. I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop where I'm now director of the program, and I had teachers who were, you know, generous and powerful and fascinating. Uh, and I watched them for years, and then I, I went to Stanford and had a Stegner Fellowship, and I taught there, and then I moved around for many years while writing, *Inheritance*. And I felt, I felt, I've always been fascinated by, the the issue of an artistic education. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like I, I love Henry James, and one of the reasons that I, am so interested in him is because he is also interested in the artistic education. And I love, for example, of all of Willa Cather's books i mean she was she was an important author for me because she wrote about the midwest She wrote about immigrants she, and she wrote about the West. I would say that my favorite book of hers is uh, Song of the Lark, which is a Kunstler Roman about a an opera singer who's born in a Colorado mining camp and so I've always been fascinated by those books because in my heart, I always dreamed of being some kind of not an artist in ter- you know not a visual artist but some kind of artist somebody who made things always fascinated and there's a, there's a strong streak in my family of artistic interest, but nobody seems to do it. My father, for example, is... Well, he's a beautiful calligrapher.
3: Well, that's he, an art. Yeah,
1: he spent hours and hours doing really, really beautiful calligraphy after he retired. And not very many people alive can write the way he does anymore. He was brought up, he was one of the last generations brought up doing brushed calligraphy. Yeah. And... Uh, He's also fascinated by Peking Opera. Mm -hmm. And my mother um, is, I mean, my mother, after after we were born, she eventually became a teacher of piano in our Mm -hmm. town. And so I just grew up surrounded by people who are interested in art. And because my own coming to writing was a fraught experience for me, it's something that has great interest for me. And my third book, all is Forgotten, Nothing is Lost, is a novel about about art and art making. Which, you know, is something that I think I could write about again.
3: Yeah. Well, it's, I, and even going back to Duhango, too, I'm wondering, were you drawn yourself to music? You said your father and your mother have this fascination with music, teaching music. Was that something you tried, or I don't know?
1: As a child, I I took violin lessons for... 12 years. Okay. So I was a serious violin student. I'm
3: sorry not to know your whole biography. No, it's so. okay. You know, it's something I didn't understand
1: at the time. Um, I was musically talented, and so I gave a full recital when I was 11 with the concerto. And we, I mean, we were probably studying music seriously at a, at a time in American history when there weren't that many kids in the Midwest who were that interested in, in classical music. and. I had a real love-hate relationship with classical music. Uh, my mother practiced with me. In Hunger, there are scenes where the father and the daughter practiced together, and it seems very, like, harsh. And I actually wrote those scenes with my mother in mind, completely. Mm-hmm. And my father never practiced with us. But I changed the gender of the, care, of the parent in order to protect my mother, really. Um, because at the time, she was a professional teacher. Sure. And if anybody knew how harsh she'd been, you know they might have had a, a misimpression of her teaching. She was a very generous, gentle teacher mm-hmm. of other people's children. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> but I had dreams about going to an art school. You know, I used to love reading and writing so much, and I had mm-hmm. dreams of it. And then when I discovered that there were such schools, I decided I had to go to one. Yeah. I mean, I knew about Iowa since I was in eighth grade, because, because I was a talented writer. Um, one of my teachers got me set up with a visiting writer who was in town, he was a recent graduate of the workshop who mm-hmm. had applied for an arts grant. And I guess I would say that I really learned a lot about the life of writers from this, from this poet. Um, He still lives in Wisconsin, actually. He was a graduate of the workshop, so he told me about it. I always knew it was there. I just never thought that I could figure out how to arrange my life so that I could actually do something that impractical, Mm -hmm. until finally I just rebelled against my parents and did it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And it was very rough for quite a while. My mother in particular was pretty disappointed in me. And I think they just kept thinking maybe it was a phase and it would go away, Mm -hmm. but really it wasn't.
3: Sure. But, you know, it's not, it, you know, on the other hand, they have a disappointment, but the discipline, you know, the discipline is so important with any the art. At least they still with the discipline. If it's not the full uh, support, that, you know, the discipline is probably more important in a way.
1: Well, I think, I don't know what's important, but I do know that I grew up thinking that it was normal to spend a couple of hours every day doing something. So that's just great. trying to okay. get good at something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that practicing did instill that in me. But I don't know. I think support is important. I think it would have been nice if they had been a little supportive.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever.
3: But it's, but it's, they sound like uh, lovely parents. I'm, I'm just imagining this this environment, this uh, the conversations you have. Um And so you mentioned, it's funny, like, there's two things there. You mentioned Henry James. It's funny because I made the note he was one of the few. I didn't know that you were a big admirer of him, but... Uh, there's a phrase, I think it is from one of his stories, and also it was used as a title of a book by, um, or I think it was for the title SF, um, Larry O'Connor, another Iowa alumni, that uh, was a line uh, uh, Henry Dem saying that in the future, possibly fiction would suffer because in the future we will not have uh, so much sense of mystery and manners. Oh, yeah. And I don't know, you were, you were mentioning mystery, so that was just something I, I just noticed.
0: Hello, my name is Yu Young Lee. I am currently a sophomore attending Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and I'm majoring in English. Earlier on in this interview, Chang shared something that made me pause. In my heart, she says, I always dreamed of being an artist, not necessarily a visual artist, but someone who made things. Someone who makes things. That, for me, was profound. Here, Lan Samantha Chang puts forth the idea that makers are artists. That, in creation, whatever its kind and however we define it, we have already found a sense of expression at its purest, uncontaminated, impenetrable form. Making is human. Becoming a writer was becoming a person, Chang observes. To write is to make. We are all makers. I even love the sweeping feel of the word. What do you do for a living? I make. I can imagine that as program director of such a renowned creative writing program, every day you're thinking about the creative process. I think it's only quite recently that I've begun to seriously wonder. One thing I've realized? I have too many names for it. I challenge myself to unpeel sticky labels I've unconsciously put on what I can and can't do. Encouraging myself and enveloping all the conduits of creativity that I take. No, that I make. To become, as Chang says, a person. Become more of who I am. Since the beginning of what I will call this surreal summer, I've retaken up ceramics here in Seoul. Retaken as in start again. Wheel throwing was an opportunity in high school that came as serendipitously as it went away when I moved away to another school halfway across the globe. I thought that since it never left my thoughts, some other chance in time would have to manifest itself. But I realized that things don't just magically make themselves. So I put myself in front of the potter's wheel. And I can't tell you how transformative the process has been. If you could see the little parcel of mud before it is centered, pulled, trimmed, fired, and glazed, and then you could see what comes out the other end, then you can only begin to imagine what it makes of me from one week to the next. It sometimes confuses people when they talk with someone and they find out that they do something that seems completely out of the blue. But I think we attribute this so-called randomness in relation to who we believe people to be, when we may truly never know. When Chang speaks about her past works, particularly about her Asian-American stories when she talks about how she wanted to write about something completely different in her most recent novel, All Is Forgotten, Nothing Is Lost. I could understand her desires to talk about anything and everything, just something new. It wasn't about being unseen as an Asian-American writer, I think of course not, but to be understood as a writer a maker of a greater exploration and comprehension of the world, with her encompassed in it. I'm reminded of the limitations we put on expression, inevitably interfering with our ongoing creation of ourselves. Chang talks about our making through our making, and it's critical not to designate expectations and instruction manuals for others, and most importantly, for ourselves. The more specific we try to label what we do, which is inevitably who we are, the more we risk slicing ourselves. Sometimes a sketch in the notebook is more arresting than the final piece hanging on a wall. That's what I remind myself when I venture out to write something new, to make something new, to see what other things I can create. I remind myself to make for the making for the making of me. I'd like to share an excerpt from a poem I wrote inspired by an art exhibition I saw. It featured the sketches and figure studies of Federico Barracci, And in seeing them alongside his other completed Renaissance pieces, I had some thoughts on process and the undertaking of creating something. The poem is called, You Talk of Process. Things are always holes before they become whole enough for so many of us. You talk of process like it's a complete thing. I stare at the traces of traces of traces, and I can hardly argue with you, even when before us lies a being with missing hands. We are looking at something so seemingly partial, but with its own lungs, it breathes. Thank you for listening. For those of you just joining, Mia Funk continues this interview with Lance Minthe Chang, writer and program director of the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop.
3: Yes, so we went to the C.K. Williams Memorial and, and poetry figures, you know, at the heart of your third book. Why did you, just tell me why you chose to, um, to write that book? what?
1: Well, I was trying to explain that I spent about, I don't know, more than 15 to 20 years just watching other writers. Mm-hmm. And watching them very carefully because as I said they became my new family. Right. And I just wanted to understand like what were the manners of this family. And what mm-hmm. I discovered was that there, well, that might describe this. Just a, I have a deep interest in understanding how art is made. I mean, I think one of the reasons I like my current job so much is because I'm allowed to sort of watch this happening to people, watch them sort of becoming interested in art and then learning, learning about it. Henry James also, in so many of his, his novels, uh, it seems to me that he, he sort of tries to approach the whole question about, about how art is made you know, he's also fascinating, sorry, this is total non sequitur. So, w- interestingly, when I was a fellow at Princeton, I was a hotter fellow for a year in 1999, and C.K. Williams was there at the time, oh, right. and my fellow fellow was the poet Marie Bang, who we decided, I guess, toward the end of our time at Princeton, that we were going to give a dinner party, and I had an apartment that had, like, space for a dinner party. And we were going to invite all the faculty, Mm -hmm. and we were going to serve them whatever food we could come up with, Mm -hmm. and just try to thank them for giving us the year Mm -hmm. of support. I was writing Inheritance at the time, and uh, Charlie was one of the few faculty members who came to our party. Mm -hmm. He and his wife uh, both came, and I remember him so vividly. He was just so generous and talkative, and... But there's something about poets that interests me and has always interested Mm -hmm. me ever since I began began being interested in writing and going to Mm -hmm. places with a lot of writers. Which is that it seems to me that okay, this is a real gross generalization. But in some ways I feel that poets
3: take a kind of bow of poverty when they start. Well the market kind of takes the market. market. Yeah. Right. So, and, then, and then short story writers and then, like, novelists, you have a chance. Well, lot think novelists have a chance, it's a but I mean, like, big. the percentage of novelists who make it big is
1: small. Yeah. But poets know they're not going to make it big.
3: Even if they make it
1: big, it's probably right, a even, <laughs> Right. Even if they make it big, um, they know that most people in this country aren't going to walk around clutching a copy of their most recent work of right. poetry. And I think that that creates that sense of throwing caution to the wind creates this largeness in people's spirits. I mean, there's, right. there's also great, you know, other qualities poets have, but there's this there's, there was huge generosity he had, and I mm-hmm. remember it really clearly that night. And another thing I remember about St. Williams was uh, sort of accidentally walking into another dinner party a little early and seeing him playing Chopin for... Oh, okay. Uh, for James Richardson, who was a, wow. co- a colleague of his and a poet, and just standing in the back of the near the door and hearing the notes of the Chopin ringing out and thinking how beautiful it was, but he wouldn't play for people. Very often he wouldn't play again after he stopped that time. He would show me. I just was lucky enough to step in on it. That's nice.
3: I feel yeah. sometimes that is sort of a, a trait of poets, because. They can do it very well, but, you know, like a novelist is kind of, or just another gross journalization, but novelist or short story writer, they kind of say, I go to work sometimes, you know, I go to work, but a poet is like, when it comes to me, when I have a moment, and...
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I know some poets who do sit down every day to work, and, yeah. and most of the fiction writers I know sit down every day to work. Mm-hmm. But then there are writers like Marilyn Robinson, my colleague, who really... Says that you shouldn't write if you don't feel like you have anything to say. Mm-hmm. Poets, I think because the voice is such an important part of poetry and, and voice is one of these things that comes and goes, you yes. know? maybe they're just more patient with, with the idea that they don't have to sit down and churn out a certain number of words per day or year. Yeah. Again, these are gross generalizations.
3: But I, I think it's okay. I think they quoted something. C.K. Williams said like that, um, nice. <laughs> so he says it is okay. <laughs> yeah,
1: I I'm just fascinated, and so when I I wrote a book, I wanted to I wanted to write a book about poetry. I mean about poem poets, and it took me years to figure out exactly what the story would be. But then once I started it, was a huge pleasure.
3: Yeah. No, it's interesting, and you and you use it to. So, you have the dichotomy of the more ambitious or the more focused, and then the more I'm right. keeping it to myself, sort of. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating, and the competition, all these things are fascinating.
1: Well, our competitiveness among writers is this big dirty secret. Mm-hmm. I don't think that most writers. Okay. I think what most writers wish is that people would appreciate and understand their work. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. And what can be very frustrating is if it seems that. The world is appreciating and understanding someone else's work, Mm -hmm. but not one's own work. Sure. And I think I tried really hard in that book to show how that desire can change not only people's relationships with their colleagues and friends, but it can change the way they work. It can change Mm -hmm. their own work. Sure. I mean, Herman Herman Melville became so depressed after Mm -hmm. the publication of Moby Dick that he... So sort of shut down as a writer. People need to feel that the work is appreciated and read. Mm-hmm. And I think in that way that the current market in publishing is, is very bad for writers because it wants to reward people for doing the same thing over and over again, which is, is contrary to artistic nature. Mm-hmm. And it also wants to reward people who produce works that can be read by as many people as possible. Right. So there's, that, that's also um, not necessarily conducive to artistic achievement, you know. Sure.
3: And then what's, I mean I, I really I don't understand it because at the moment they keep on telling us that our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And that those who write in the shortest possible, I mean you could, maybe a, a tweet is shorter, but you know poets are the least uh, compensated so it doesn 't make sense because and i think i think it's a market i think if a clever marketer can could uh, not that you want to be told what you like but we are re, you know p- sometimes people don 't even finish newspaper articles and you would think that poetry and short stories are mo- are closest to that spectrum, but it doesn 't make sense
1: well I think that people are interested in novels because they um, want to inhabit other worlds mm-hmm. i mean it's a it's a fairly um, straightforward desire to escape the world Mm -hmm. that one is in and novels will do that for you Mm -hmm. and other forms don't physically last as long. Mm -hmm. I think that so much of reading a novel is physical. The actual amount of time it takes to absorb the story is time that you're allowed to be absent from your life Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's why people love them. I think also there's a sense, when you're in the middle of a novel, that you're just in the middle of a, a, of a mysterious and, and, and complex world uh, with a set of rules that you're just figuring out. It's like being in another country. A complex set of rules, something very rich, something hidden, you know that <laughs> sense of reality. Of course the difference between um, novels and realities that novels end, and they have to shut themselves down
2: yeah
3: well that, that that becomes there's a certain artificialness of structure yeah 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 but um, well you know, everything has to have a structure otherwise the foundation will collapse
1: well yes that's that's
3: the whole problem with writing novels <laughs> how <laughs> to know when do you know for instance are you where, are you working on short stories or novels or um, actually at this very time um,
1: here in France I'm writing a novella oh okay it's a novella I started years ago and put aside because I sense there's something in like interesting about the first two parts of it, mm-hmm. and that the ending worked, but I couldn't get the first two parts to work. Mm-hmm. And I, and um, really, I was at McDowell Colony this oh. this fall, and I mm-hmm. happened to take a look at it, read it again, and a little light went off in my head. I thought, oh, actually, this ending really is beautiful, and you should really try to work on the first parts to make it possible to come to an ending. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, mm-hmm. so I. After I got back from, after I left McDowell, I came here and started working hard on it.
3: Okay. So does that, does it often happen that you have an ending or do you start with, I mean, I can't say generally, but, you know, uh, beginnings are important too. I mean, how did each of your different projects begin? beginnings
1: are very difficult for me. Yeah. I, I think beginnings are hard because you have to make a few steps that will build into exactly what you want and so finding the first steps is really difficult and in 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 addition to that beginnings require a, a tone you know decisions about all kinds of decisions about tone point of view voice you know narration all all these really tricky questions that you can't really answer until you know what the whole thing is about so i suppose that a lot of my work is backwards in that I have to figure out what it's about and even know how it's going to end before I can start it. However, I do not plan. Like, I can't do outlines. Mm-hmm. I just have to have a sense of where it's going mm-hmm. in order for me to know what it is. I think with Inheritance, I had the most trouble that I've ever had with the project. It was extremely Time-consuming and challenging, and I think I rewrote the first half seven times, and then I rewrote the second half seven times, and then I rewrote the whole thing again, you know, wow. number of times. And a lot of that was because I was trying to absorb an enormous amount of history and politics, in, into myself, and then bring it back out again in a way that was somehow coherent. And it just took a lot of time. Um, all is forgotten. On the other hand. It took me a long time to get started on it, but once I figured out the point of view, hmm. I was able to just rush through 50 pages, which I then put aside for a couple of years because I was busy at work. Mm-hmm. And then after I had my Guggenheim, I was able to, to have time to sit down and, and stretch it out. Right. But that book was nowhere near as painful as Inheritance.
3: Well, what were some of the things you had to do for research? Well, for inheritance, um, I
1: knew that I wanted to write about the country my parents were from. And, of course, as I also said, they didn't tell me very much about it. So I think that the research for that book really began when I went to college and majored in East Asian Studies and studied Chinese history, modern Chinese history, with Jonathan Spence at Yale. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that I was able to see the big picture of what had happened in China that had made it necessary for my parents, each in their own circumstances, to leave China and go where they went next. Mm -hmm. And then after I understood the big picture, the stories, little stories that I'd heard from, mostly from my mother, Mm -hmm. uh, began to fit into the big picture and I was able to see my parents' life in the bigger scheme of things. Mm which was really, in many ways, I think, my reason for writing that book. I just wanted to be able to understand their lives.
3: Mm. No, it's, a, it's a good personal reason for writing a book. I mean, you have to have this.
1: I don't think it's possible to write from a place where you understand what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. I think it's essential um, to write from a place where you don't know mm-hmm. what it is that you're writing about. And so in that way, Inheritance made perfect sense. The only problem was, it took so long <laughs> that I was pretty exhausted by the time I was finished with it. Yeah. Still, I'm really glad I wrote it.
3: Yeah, yeah I, I, I can understand that. Sometimes, uh, I'm just thinking of that wild poem, We Kill the Thing We Love. Sometimes, just to look for the perfection. That's what the artist does. You can just... You give joy to someone else, but by the end of it, you're exhausted. Oh, you're exhausted, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Completely. Yeah. Even if you're painting happiness, in the end, you're just <laughs> depleted. So, but that's the joy. It's a sweet depletion. It's not like other things. It's, it's a, a, nice, a nice suffering, if you Well, say I
1: don't know. I mean, yeah. I, after I finish a project, I usually feel quite empty and down. Yeah. A, yeah, I remember when I, after I wrote, after Inheritance was published... Um, I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep, and my husband said, what's wrong? And I said, my book is dead. You know, it's dead. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't work on it anymore. Okay. All those characters that I'd gotten to know so well and the conversations they'd had that i thought about so much were essentially drained of meaning now that I knew that I wouldn't be working on them anymore. Sure. And that was that was a hard time. I think it was at that point that I decided to take my job at Iowa just because I thought, well, I need something to do. Then after I got to Iowa, I, I started wanting to write again um, very much and, and luckily had the Guggenheim and was able to work on my next novel. Mm-hmm. So
3: what you, if I can talk about some of the, what, what do you get from teaching?
1: Yeah. Oh, I love teaching. I think a lot of, well, as, as someone who's introverted by nature, it's nice to have the opportunity to interact with other people. Yeah, other introverted
3: um, people. Yeah, many nature. of whom are introverted by nature. <laughs> yes.
1: So getting a bunch of very thoughtful people in a room to talk about works of the imagination is often just highly pleasurable, and I almost never walk into the classroom without feeling lucky that I am able to do that. For example, this semester in Paris I'm teaching, I taught a small class at the American Library, and I just love the writers in Paris who are working in English. They're... they're um, their projects have a large scope. Many of them are living in Paris, speaking a language different from the language that surrounds them. They've come from other places. Their view of the world is just naturally larger and more complex mm-hmm. than, than I'm used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I get to read lots of novels historical novels, novels set in different countries, novels set in I don't know, it's just, it's it's a real pleasure to, to work with them. Mm-hmm. And my students at Iowa are, I think, the best emerging writers in the United States. And many of them are from other countries at this yeah. point. And it's a huge privilege to sit with them while certain works are being made that will, I know, are going to find readers and become an important part of the conversation about literature mm-hmm. in the U.S. and out of the U.S.
3: Yeah, yeah no, I can imagine this. Right? And, and I was wondering, well, I teach, but I'm not doing it at the moment, but uh, is, there, is there ever a conflict, because time is a conflict for everyone, I'm sorry. that you're, um, I was talking to Tobias Wolf about it, he says he makes sure he doesn't teach too much, because, um, even though I guess he's retiring now, but... Um, well, he was a full-time professor for yeah. his entire adult life. Sure, so So he has to balance that.
1: Well, I think that, I don't know what it's like for Toby, but for me, Mm -hmm. teaching is not a challenge to my writing. The thing that interrupts my writing is running the program. Because I'm the director of our program. And that has been the biggest challenge to my time. Mm -hmm. As the American educational system changes, a lot of what's happening goes against the creation of a good environment for artistic development and so I spent huge amounts of my time trying to make sure that the students in our program have time and space to -hmm. work and support and I find that very frustrating at times.
3: Mm I can imagine. I don't know what it's like now. I know that there was encouragement, I guess they called it language, um, language arts so when I was growing up, but uh, creative writing. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't know what the school system is like now, in in, in advance of college, what students, uh, are they encouraged to write creatively, or is it just essays? Oh, in the U.S.? Yeah, I don't know what it's like now. Tests, is it, I don't know.
1: I don't know anything about High school. Uh-huh. But in college, mm-hmm. I can tell you something about. It. In college in the US in the last say fifteen years, there has been an explosion of creative writing programs, majors, minors, tracks in English departments. There has been a great interest in creative writing in the United States. Mm-hmm. And there have been a huge number there a huge number of masters programs. Have been created just mm-hmm. in the last twenty years in the United States. Thousands of people are receiving MFA degrees every year in the mm-hmm. U.S.
3: Wow, I'm not sure there might not be that many readers, or <laughs> just about equal. Well, one yeah. of the nice things about MFA students is yeah.
1: that they like to read. That's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keep and and it's good. it's an opportunity for people to read. Yeah, and earn yeah. a degree and to read for pleasure. The so people in the US have turned to creative writing in an academic or group setting with great passion. And I think that it is happening at the same time that our society is becoming increasingly interested in quantitative uh, measures of accomplishment or you know, financial success. I I'm not financial, or success. I think it's a it's sort of happens because people recognize internally that there has to be a counterpart or something to balance this obsession with numbers. So I think that one thing about reading is that it builds the part of your mind that is sort of the opposite. Um, People have noticed that reading fiction increases compassion. I think that the interest in creative writing programs is healthy and good for that reason. It's mm-hmm. making people read and write.
3: Well, I and I think it is important, as you say, in empathy, compassion, to imagine yourself into the space of a, another culture, another country, yeah, yeah,
1: or another person. Mm-hmm. It's very important. I I feel that the work being done in our program is is really wonderful. The program is flourishing. Wonderful work is being done. Uh, and in that way I love my job mm-hmm. being the person who has to sort of be responsible is, is time consuming sure. to get back to your question
2: mm-hmm.
3: but without you know without people who make it you know because we right, but you have to create this structure it's like plotting a novel it's this tough one to someone has to
1: well somebody has to sort of fight at the borders mm-hmm. to keep life from encroaching on art I think mm-hmm. so they need the students need space and time to work, and they mm-hmm. should have that, and they should have the time to experiment and take risks, mm-hmm. and that requires a space where they have support and mm-hmm. academic support and financial support.
3: Okay, I know, I know you wanted this up, and uh, I just there was one thing I was wondering though. You gave a talk. I, so I didn't attend at the American Eye, but it was about The Great Gatsby. I was wondering why you did or if there was any... Oh,
1: I've always loved
3: that book yeah. because
1: I, I feel like it's so beautifully formed. He said, in, uh, Fitzgerald said, I want to write something new, something... She said, uh, something new, something beautiful and simple and complex or, and intricately patterned. I, I, mm. I'll put the real quote in. And I just love the beauty of that book. I love how carefully shaped it is. I love the language. I find it sort of a fascinating piece of work, yeah. and I could really talk about it for a long time on a number of sub, uh, number of issues, but in this particular um, talk I was just sort of describing on a really basic level what the correspondence between F. Scott Fitzgerald and his editor Maxwell Perkins at Scrivener's was like, oh. you know, what were the parameters of the conversation, Um, The thing that sort of struck me and everyone in the audience as I was talking was the recognition that actually Perkins' advice to Fitzgerald was fairly Mm -hmm. brief. Mm -hmm. He made two major points, aside from the fact that he wanted Fitzgerald to change the title, which was indeed awful. (laughs) yeah, He only gave him two pieces of advice, and the thousands of changes that Fitzgerald made in galleys were the result of his having really understood and internalized what Perkins was trying to say and figured out the way that he could recreate the novel with those shaping suggestions in mind. So okay. thousands of little changes along the way mm-hmm. creating a streamlined book, like mm-hmm. a book with a clearer shape and mm-hmm. a clearer idea of who gets Gatsby was at the center of it. You know, a clearer formation of the question, who is who is Jay Gatsby, at the center of it. So it was fascinating to notice that only a couple of suggestions were made, but they resulted in such a vastly different and more perfect book,
3: or more beautiful book. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. And this is just, you know, just like, I just saw you yesterday, so thank you. Oh, no,
1: I'm glad. I wanted to make sure I did it because we're really sort of winding down our semester here, which is really sad. Yeah. We've enjoyed living here so much. It's been such a nice,
3: uh,
1: uh, such a nice time. We've had a really is, nice
3: time. No, it is nice. But you come to Paris regularly. You
1: know, I realized that in the last nine years I've probably come nine or ten times. Yeah. But I don't, well, no, I've come nine or ten times to France. We're not always in Paris. I think for three years in a row I taught at the, um... The AOP? No, it was the Paris Writers' Festival with oh, the Yeah, yeah and twice,
3: then, and then I just ended up coming back. Well, it, it seems like it could be a second home and... Uh, I like the it, yeah. So, well, there's a lot of great programs just at NYU as well, Columbia. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, maybe, okay, I know. okay. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, thanks very much.
0: This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast and Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at teamcreativeprocess.info. At Thank you for listening.